Good evening. Well, a surprise visit by Boris Johnson to Kiev over the weekend. And I have to say, for all my criticisms over many months of Boris Johnson and his lack of leadership on Ukraine, he really is showing very decisive leadership. And as a result of that, his global reputation is on the up. It's Brexit Britain showing it can now stand up on its own two feet. He's certainly doing well on the world stage compared to Sleepy Joe, who apparently is the president of the United States of America. However, domestically, the Conservative Party reputation is falling as fast as a stone. At least that's what I believe. Just think through this list. In 2019, Charlie Elfing MP was given a two and a half year prison sentence for sex assaults on two younger women. We then have Dominic Cummings driving to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight, as if anyone was going to believe that. The Hancock Affair during lockdown. Owen Patterson, advocacy, breach of commons rules, and of course in the end resigned as an MP. The endless party gate saga, and quite a few fines, or fixed penalty notices rather, given out already. Then Matt Hancock has found to have acted unlawfully when his department did not reveal details of contracts it had signed during the COVID-19 pandemic. And just last week, we were treated to the Tory MP for Somerset and Prim, David Warburton, suspended from the party over claims of sexual harassment, taking cocaine, and now, if you believe the Sunday newspapers, lobbying on behalf of a Russian who'd lent him money. And today, we have Imran Ahmad Khan, and he has been found guilty in court of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old back in 2008. Oh, and I almost forgot. There's a guy called Rishi Sunak, and he's the Chancellor. Now, we have to be clear here that at all times the rules were followed. You see, that's what they tell us. Every time we get something like this, we're told all of the rules were followed. But there's a big impression here that it's one rule for you and a completely different rule for them. Yes, of course, there was his wife's non-doms status. And that was designed not for people that live in this country and bring their kids up here. It was designed for international businessmen and women who go back and forth. And then we find that the Chancellor has an American green card. That is a right to residency. It's a move towards becoming an American. And he held that at the same time as he was Chancellor. At the same time as we were trying to negotiate trade deals with America. It is a clear conflict of interests. Is it that he deliberately tried to cheat the system? No, it's not, actually. It's because we are run by an entitled group of very wealthy people. They're in it for themselves, as opposed to being in it for you. And they are complacent. They are naive in many, many ways. Rishi Sunak's reputation has fallen even faster than many others. And my question is to you, do you trust this Tory party? Let me know, please, what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. And I think it's very difficult to trust them. But I'm joined by Tim Montgomery, who, of course, knows number 10, former special advisor to Boris Johnson. Tim, I'm thinking back. You know, over the years, you get the odd Labour MP or the odd Tory MP, and they get done for fraud. Or, and you can think of those names and scandals going back, certainly sort of 40, 50 years that I've been looking at current affairs. But now, and by the way, it's Labour too. I've had many MPs in trouble. But just look at that list I read out mm. of Tory MPs in real trouble, you know, serious legal trouble. Mm. I guess the Partygate stuff has gone away to a certain extent with Ukraine. But again, 
you know, Boris Johnson tells us it's within the rules, then it turns out much of it wasn't within the rules. And then we have this Sunak saga. I mean, it just seems to me that one of the reasons Brexit happened was we sort of lost a bit of faith mm. in the direction our political class were taking us. We're back to square one or worse, aren't we? Well, I, I, I think you started by talking about how Boris had performed well on the Ukraine yep. crisis. And I agree with you that with that. But in a way, I think it has, could be a bit of a trouble for the Tory party in a way, because without it, they would have had to face up to what clearly was an ethics crisis in the party. Mm. And without it, I think the questions that you're asking tonight would have been much more centre stage. And I think what the Ukraine crisis has done, and yes, Boris's leadership, Ben Wallace, particularly the defence secretary, mm. has been brilliant. Mm they have been able to sort of take their eye off the ball of the domestic front. And the clock is ticking and months are now passing in which they're not dealing with what I think was an ethical void at the heart of government. Downing Street didn't set a moral lead and the prime minister seemed to be able to get away with things. And I think certain conservative MPs thought they would then be able to get away with things. And there is a sort of a Middle England vote out there, I think of people like my mum, who won't vote Conservative if there is a sort of a smell, you know, about yeah, I mean, I... And that is what is... Yes, there's a sort of a Brexit sort of working class new red wall vote for the Tories, mm. but they can't neglect that core Shire vote that has been the bread and butter of the Conservative coalition for four or five And it decades. wants a very decent Tory party. It wants a decent Tory party, and I it's mean, not getting it at the no, moment. And, it, and, it and that of, needs to be cleaned up. Are there parallels here with John Major's administration? Because in a sense, you know, the, back, the famous back to basics yeah. speech and it all fell to pieces, and all right, maybe 18 years in power was too yeah. long, but it was reputation, wasn't it? The reputation yeah. of the Conservatives fell. And I, I, I could be wrong, Tim, but I, I think on the current trajectory, they're going to lose the next election. Because I just don't see where the enthusiasm to go out and vote for them is. And I'm noticing Labour outflanking them. Labour now talking pro-business. Mm. Labour now talking lower taxes with the national insurance rises. Labour today getting tough on protesters on the, on the street. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they're in danger of being out, outflanked on all of these things. Well, because I think we forget, really, the Tories have now been in power for 12 years. Yep. We've had the, you know, yep. It's been slightly confusing because we've had the coalition, then we had Theresa May, and now we've had Boris Johnson. But there is almost in every institution, any organisation that's been in power for a long time, complacency sets in. And particularly with the weakness that there has been in Her Majesty's opposition, you look across the House of Commons, you think those people are never going to replace us. Mm. But actually, Labour are slowly getting their act together. For me, there's still two Labour parties. There's still a hangover yeah. from Jeremy Corbyn's um, party, as well as the party that Keir Starmer is trying to build. But that's not the topic for tonight. The topic no, for tonight it's, is, it's, is the Conservative Party... Trust. Yeah. That's our debate. And I think a lot of can you tell Can you tell our viewers, Tim, that they should trust this Conservative Party? Not at the moment, no, because I'm not sure that I can. And I think why there is sort of particular concern at the moment was that, OK, Boris Johnson, many thought, was, you know, time-limited. But Rishi Sunak was the person waiting in the wings, you know, to be the uh, the knight in shining armour, in a way. But, you know, there's that joke at the moment, you know, an, an Englishman, an American, an Indian walks into a pub and the landlord says, you're regular, sir? And that sort of sense that the, mm. the Chancellor of the Exchequer isn't committed 
to the country for which he is Chancellor yep. of the Exchequer. Well, he, he was it's... born in Southampton, not India. <laughs> but, but, but when you hold an American green card and you're Chancellor, there is a conflict of interest. There is a conflict of interest. And, you know, today, people on benefits will have had an increase of 3.1%. Yes. Well, every time I go into the supermarket, Prices are rising an awful lot faster. Retail price index. Retail price index rising by 8.2%, 3.1% rise, as you say. People are all going to be a lot, lot poorer. And you, you can't understand, I think, the trouble that the Chancellor is in outside of the context of a very, very wealthy person hmm. imposing a sort of a benefits rise that is very, very small relative to the rise in prices. And the biggest danger for the Conservative Party has always been that it's seen as a party of the rich. And if it's retoxified as the party of the rich, it's in very, well, very big trouble. We also indeed. learned today that Sajid Javid was a non-dom as well. It does look very much like the party of the rich. Final thought, Tim. Um, we're not talking about it much in public in this country at the moment, but May the 5th is not very far away. Yeah. A massive set of local elections, the whole of London, uh, and different elections all around the country. And Boris may be having a good, see, being seen to have a good war in Ukraine in terms of how he's behaved and the leadership that he's given, and we both credit him with that. But when I vote on May the 5th, I'm not voting about Ukraine, am I? No. And frankly, I don't want Keir Starmer and Nicola Sturgeon to hold the balance of power at the next election, which I think is the only alternative to the Conservatives. Labour can't, I think, just looking on at their the own. numbers, get a majority. So the choice is between a Conservative Party that's fit to govern mm. and that nightmare scenario. So in a way, I'll, you know, I don't think I can vote on May the 5th. There's no votes in my, in my locality. But actually, I do want, in a way, the, the Conservative Party to be shocked into changing course. And so if that, we don't get that wake-up on May the 5th, I worry that the Conservative Party won't be prepared for the next general election. And I think the thing that would frighten the Conservative Party most probably would be a strong showing by the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Because it's the strong showing by the Liberal Democrats that will really frighten the Conservatives in, in the south of England. Devon and Cornwall and Buckinghamshire Absolutely, and all the way yeah. through. So we'll wait and see. Tim Montgomery, they were really quite strong words from a lifelong Conservative. Well, they're getting stronger and stronger. <laughs> I, I, I'll have my membership rescinded soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Well, today at the Old Bailey, after a fairly short time out of court, uh, the jury have made their decision. And, of course, it is a, to do with the appalling murder of Sir David Amos. Ali Harby Ali has been convicted. He will be sentenced in a few days' time. He showed, from what I could see, no remorse whatsoever. And down there at the Old Bailey today was our home and security editor, Mark White. Yes, we're TA. We're waiting Outside this Baptist church in Leon C, the first police arrived to reports of a horrific stabbing. They say he's got a knife and he's just stabbed off. Lying critically wounded inside the church, local MP Sir David Amos. At the same time, we've got a taser unit one minute away, so we're going to go in and take the Just moments earlier, frantic 999 calls for help. Please, please, quick now. The man is wielding a knife. Um, he's showing me he's, Where he's, he's killed. He's, he's killed David Amos at Belfast Methodist Church. With the attacker still inside, the unarmed officers decide they have to push forward. Mate, drop the knife. Drop, drop the knife now! Get it down! Take the taser! Wait, search him. 
With the attackers subdued, medics were finally able to reach the stricken MP. But Sir David died at the scene, having suffered more than 20 stab injuries. As he was booked into custody, terrorist Ali Harbi Ali openly admitted his motivation. Domestic or hate related in Terror. Earlier, CCTV captured him leaving his London home, heading for Sir David's regular constituency surgery. In his rucksack, the 12-inch long murder weapon. When I first came in, Despite denying murder in court, in police interviews, the 26-year-old was more candid. Mr. Ali, is this a terrorist attack? I mean, I guess, yeah, I killed an MP and I've done it. Yeah. Okay. Ali showed the first signs of radicalisation in 2014 and was briefly referred to counter-extremism programmes. It's a reflection of the challenge we face in counter-terrorism today. So after 16 years as a counter-terrorism detective, the threat has diversified significantly. And if an individual is going to sit at home on their own, conducting research and not tell anyone else about their case, that's part of the challenge that we face. Um, but we do that with the family of those that have been radicalised, with, with the public, to take every attempt to disrupt and detect terrorism where we can. Ali had been planning an attack for at least five years before he finally struck, scoping out a number of potential victims, including Cabinet Minister Michael Gove, even writing down possible methods of attack, like targeting him during his morning jog. Fellow Cabinet Minister Dominic Raab and Labour leader Sukir Starmer were also in his sights. Southend no should way. be the city of Colorado. In the end, he settled on Sir David Amos, an easy target always accessible to his constituents. David was a very special person and that is why there's been such a deep feeling of tragedy after his murder. Uh, this was no ordinary MP, this was someone who was completely dedicated to his job. Uh, and to lose someone like that, I think it's affected us all. It's certainly affected me very badly. That feeling of profound loss was felt most keenly in Sir David's constituency, where locals developed a deep respect for a politician who dedicated much of his time to campaigning for South End to gain city status. That mission completed posthumously. As he begins life behind bars, Sir David's killer has never shown any remorse for the murder of a much-loved and deeply respected Member of Parliament. Mark White, GB News. And Mark White joins me now. Mark, um, as you said at the end there, no remorse, so sentencing will be in a few days. Um, is there anything we can learn out of this? Is there anything we can... Can we point the finger at counter-terrorism and say they failed? Or would that be unfair? I think that would be unfair. Uh, they did uh, at uh, some point in 2014, not the police as such, but the authorities in general were aware that this individual was showing extremist tendencies, uh, that he was becoming increasingly radicalised, and he was diverted into this counter-extremism programme. Now, we're told that he had cooperated with the programme, and after a while, uh, he was then clearly cut loose from that programme, he was never deemed uh, someone serious enough to be uh, 
considered uh, a significant figure that was worthy of an MI5 launched investigation. So that never happened. So they didn't really drop the ball in that sense. And when you consider there are many thousands of individuals out there who hold extreme views, uh, you're never going to be able to keep tabs on all of them and you have to make these difficult choices about who to devote resources to at any given time. As far as this individual is concerned, uh, he had radicalised further really in the bedroom and that I think is one of the issues really to hammer home from this particular case. It shows just how difficult it is for the authorities to get a handle on who these people are when they're not actually mixing with other plotters, uh, buying ingredients for bombs, the kind of uh, plotting that you would uh, consider to be uh, the, the, the type of a historical plotting where a group of individuals would come together, they would leave telltale signs yeah. potentially, yeah. Uh, electronic signs and the like, you know, they would be uh, giving signs that the authorities could pick up on. When it's one individual in their bedroom, it is very difficult, Nigel, to get a handle no. on that. No, I absolutely accept that, Mark. Thank you very much indeed for that synopsis. An endless list of scandals, it seems. Can you trust the Tories? I asked you earlier. Vera says, like most decent, hard-working people, neither the mainstream party represents me. Michael says, no, 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 corrupt to the core. Another says, on the whole, yes, but I really don't trust Labour or the Lib Dems either. And Carlos says, no, 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 I'm embarrassed to admit I used to be a committed Tory voter, never again. And Martin says, oh, yes, much more that I would trust any other party. Well, that's all well and good, but hardly a ringing endorsement. So the first round of the French presidential elections yesterday. Let's analyse them uh, and let's have a think as to what's going to happen on Sunday, the 24th of April. And joining me is Peter Allen, Paris-based journalist. Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. First comment, a quick comment. Everyone here is talking about Macron v Le Pen and they're all ignoring the fact that Jean-Luc Mélenchon of the pretty hard left got 22% of the vote and wasn't that far behind Marine Le Pen. And what we've seen is the traditional Conservative Party uh, and Socialist parties in France, they've almost disappeared, haven't they? Absolutely incredible changes in French politics, Nigel. The Gaullists, the, the Conservative uh, Party of uh, Charles de Gaulle, uh, absolutely wiped out yesterday, less than 5%. It lost uh, its deposits and uh, will not get its expenses refunded now. They are literally crowdfunding an appeal for 7 million euros. Imagine De Gaulle, uh, having in De Gaulle's days. Socialists, forget them. They, they were in government uh, under Francois Hollande uh, just uh, five years ago. Yep. Uh, they polled at just under 2%. Imagine that, wiped out these as well. Are, these are meanwhile, as you say, you have changes. extremist parties. Now, now You have extremist parties like Mélenchon's uh, yeah. getting 20, 22%, 23%, yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of the BBC today and others call Le Pen far right. I was having a look at her economic policies. Strikes me that her economic policies are quite in line with the hard left Mélenchon. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, she has got a very uh, anti-capitalist feel to her, certainly her economic agenda, and in many ways her social agenda as well. 
she uh, is somebody who's hugely skeptical uh, of the huge organizations that play such an important part in all our lives. Uh, for example, the banks. The banks haven't looked after her at all here in France uh, over the years. She's, been, uh, she's had to go abroad for, for financing. Uh, she has uh, an anti-establishment view. Uh, she has removed uh, Frexit from her agenda, but there's no doubt uh, Marine Le Pen presidency would be a huge thorn in the side to, uh, to the European project, okay. should be attacking it from the within. So yes, all kinds of uh, establishment, anti-establishment noises from Marine Le Pen. And uh, I think that's a very, very fair comparison with Mélenchon in some respects, Nigel. Yeah, it just interests me looking at this and, and some of the lazy terminology, perhaps, that we use. Now, Peter, my theory is this. I watched all of this five years ago. I watched the debate. I saw Macron completely outwitted and outplayed her, you know, from the very start. You know, he won the sort of gamesmanship before. She performed terribly in that debate. Um, and many thought she might get 41 42% last time. She finished up getting 34 Seems to me that debate on the 20th of April is going to be the absolute key to this election. Do you agree? Couldn't agree more, Nigel. I think that's an outstanding uh, analysis, especially from somebody who doesn't even live in France. I think you've got it absolutely spot on there. Everybody is talking about uh, that debate, that live debate, yeah. uh, four days before the second round as the real game, potentially the real game changer, the one that really tells us who's going to win this time round. Marine Le Pen has pretty much said that she spent the last five years locked in a room many hours during the day, revising all the issues she got wrong last time. Fair play to her, she said that she was humiliated uh, in, in many respects over key issues then. Her view is that you improve in life. I think a lot of people uh, are behind on that. Uh, other very famous uh, presidents have got into the Elysee after a few attempts. Uh, François Mitterrand, it took him uh, a couple of times before, a couple of elections before he got in. Jacques Chirac, uh, the late Jacques Chirac, obviously the late uh, François Mitterrand as well. But uh, she feels as though she is learning all the time. She's wow. uh, taking new ideas on board. And she thinks she's got a chance in that debate, Nigel. We've, well, we're going to see on the 20th. It'll decide everything. And there's one other reason why it matters, and that is, unlike the last American elections or British elections, they don't have large-scale postal voting in France. It's about turning up on the day. Peter Allen, we're going to speak to you more in the course of the next couple of weeks, and thank you for joining me this evening. So a speech that took place yesterday, and the Ukrainian president was talking about help that he'd got from around the world. And, of course, he praised Boris Johnson to the high heavens. He wasn't quite as complimentary about the American president. To tell you the truth, long ago I asked President Biden for very specific items. He has the list. President Biden can enter history as the person who stood shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian people who won and chose the right to have their own country. This also depends on him. Well, joining me is Susan Platt, former chief of staff to Joe Biden. Susan, thank you for coming back on the programme. When Joe Biden was elected, the big cry was America is back, that somehow normal service had been resumed and that America was going to take you know, a big leadership role in the world. 
And when Zelensky says that he sent a list of what he needs to the president but hasn't heard back, um, has, has Biden walked away from that role? <laughs> Good to be with you, Nigel. No, as a matter of fact, I think he's taken a very strong leadership role. Um, I, I, I hate to think what, where we would be if the former president were with us, instead of seeing someone like Boris Johnson walking the streets of Kiev with uh, Vladimir Zelensky, we'd see Donald Trump walking the streets of Moscow with Vladimir Putin. Um, Joe Biden has been leading the way, sending as much um, uh, items from military, weapons that, that we can. And it's a Herculean task transporting all this material all across, across the pond, all through Europe and across the border. So I think we've done a good job of, he has done a good job of pulling together with NATO, um, working collectively and getting as much uh, military weapons that we can, as much as quickly as we can. Well, I mean, you know, Susan, I, I, I would say to you, actually, uh, he was very reluctant uh, to come to Europe, to come to NATO. Uh, it took weeks for him to do it. Um, yes, he hasn't been to Ukraine, I suspect that Donald Trump would have been on whistle-stop tours everywhere. But that's not necessarily the point here. You know, clearly, clearly, uh, Zelensky wants more from America. It just doesn't make sense to me that it's taking so long. Or is it? Or is it well, a fear? Is it the no, fear I that we I move? Think... Is it the fear that we move from providing defensive weapons into providing offensive weapons? Is that where the delay is, perhaps? No, I think the point is, is that if we had the previous president, they would not be getting weapons at all from us. That that we would be friendly with Vladimir Putin and not with Vladimir Zelensky. No, no, no. I think it is the point. Joe Biden has played and has always played in terms of formulations the long game. It's not for a political point of the day or even the week. The long game of, of supporting our allies, of supporting democracies, all across the world, and I think he's done a bang-up job, and we all do, of working together with NATO to get as much reinforcement to Ukraine as we can, as much support we can give them. Well, I, Susan, I'm pretty convinced if Trump was in the White House, he wouldn't have invaded at all. Um, I think he'd have been too worried about... And the we wouldn't be in NATO. And we wouldn't be in NATO, so where would we all be? No, 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 no. Actually, what Trump got was the reluctant uh, NATO members to start paying a bit more money. Uh, and that surely was a good well, thing. Well, that's not really the point here, is it? The point here is protecting Ukraine and protecting democracies and not standing up for uh, horrible terrorists like Vladimir Putin, which what Donald Trump has been doing for four years. Well, I think that's what the... I think, I think the Germans are doing a better job of that, though, by buying all this one billion euros worth of oil and gas a day. Susan, we agree to disagree, but thank you for coming on and defending President Biden. Thank you. Sure. There we are. I didn't agree with much of that, but, hey... That's what open free debate here is on GB News. Now, just stop oil. Yes, they've been blockading depots. Um, other offshoots have been lying down on Lambeth Bridge. It is truly dreadful. And one in three, one in three petrol stations in the south of England have pumps that are closed. I noticed it going around the motorway the other day. Whether we're on the verge of another big fuel crisis, I don't know. It's not impossible. But interestingly, interestingly, the Labour Party have responded tonight by calling for immediate nationwide injunctions to block the Just Stop Oil protest to give the police the power to arrest people en masse. And that is coming from the Labour Party 
trying to outflank the Conservatives on law and order. Worth thinking about. Now, we are going to talk now to the Taxpayers' Alliance, who've got for us a little example of a waste of taxpayers' money. This example may not be big in terms of money, but it does perhaps illustrate where so many billions disappear. I'm joined by Joe Ventray, Digital Campaigns Manager for the Taxpayers' Alliance. Joe, tell us what you found. Oh, thank you for having me on, Nigel. Um, yeah, essentially what we've done is we've looked into some government data and what we've found is that the Cabinet Office has paid uh, just over £70,000 in the last financial year to projects which aim to uh, resettle illegal immigrants in Jamaica back in their home country. And, you know, as you say there, Nigel, £70,000 isn't a grand sum of money in the, in the whole scheme of things. But, I mean, when you consider that an individual deportation costs somewhere in the region of £13,000, I think the principle alone is just a kick in the teeth. And ultimately, every penny of that comes from taxpayers' pockets. And I think those same taxpayers are bound to ask why they're being made to pay for this, why they're being made to bear responsibility for these resettlements. Yeah, as you say, we pay enough of the deportations anyway. Um, yeah. And have you had a response yourself from the Home Office on this? Uh, no, we haven't at this point, Nigel, but it's certainly something that we're going to be monitoring. And I think, you know, we can all see that this is an inexcusable example of waste, uh, you know, while everyone's going through a cost of living crisis. And I think what we would really urge is that ministers should be looking immediately to crack down on these sorts of projects and uh, ensure that they get their priorities straight. Yeah, well, I have to say, I think it's a very interesting case study and thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Well, we did hear at GB News right to the Home Office earlier on today, um, and we asked them uh, what they made of this, and they did provide us with a very fulsome statement. This government puts the rights of the British public before those of dangerous criminals. Well, that's a good thing. And we are clear that foreign criminals should be deported from the UK wherever it is legal and practical to do so. Since January 2019, we have removed over 10,000 foreign criminals. We use charter flights where commercial routes are limited or where it is most cost-effective. From April 2020 to October 21, we conducted 95 of these flights, including to Jamaica, to return people who had no right to be here. The government also provided funding to charitable organisations to help people upon their return to Jamaica, ensuring those who are deported receive training and qualifications to reintegrate back into society. Well, yes, there we are. It's hands up. They give the Jamaican government money uh, to retrain people. I'm not sure that makes a great deal of sense. I would have thought that was the responsibility of Jamaica. As I say, it's a little example. But remember, Lord Agnew's resignation over billions and billions of pounds being lost in fraud. And you begin to ask yourself, why? Why, oh, why, oh, why did national insurance go up last week? Well, it didn't need to, did it? If we looked after our money better. Well, I'm joined by Justin Doherty, a government crisis advisor and someone that knows all about the strange and mysterious world of messaging. Welcome, Justin, to Talking Pints. Thanks, Nigel. Cheers. And good to have somebody on who is a, a devotee of the great English pub and enjoys a drink himself. We don't get many of those for some reason. Now, Justin, you, you know, quite conventionally served a long time in the British Army. Uh, you know, the crisis in the Balkans and all of that. I say conventionally because what you've been doing ever since, you know, a lot of our people at home won't quite understand it, but you went off to work with Lord Bell, who, of course, was an extraordinary figure, wasn't he, in terms of helping shape Margaret Thatcher's career, messaging, and many other things. I mean, are you a sort of glorified spin doctor, really? No, I think 
the best way to describe what we do is, is you know, we, we work in this complicated information space. And things used to be quite straightforward a generation ago. There was uh, newspapers and, and authority figures that would help us to know what we should think. Things have changed fundamentally in the last 15 years. Uh, the, the advent of digital and social media means that we're now all part of that information environment, whether we like it or not. And it affects our lives, and it affects the uh, world that we live in. And what we do is we help people navigate that complicated environment. And you've helped some quite important people, haven't you? You know, Ugandan prime ministers and presidents of countries. And I guess for them, a lot of it's about their reputation, isn't it? About how the public sees them, about how their country is seen as well. Reputation matters. Um, it matters to people because uh, at the heart of things, uh, it, your reputation is the thing that allows you to achieve your goals. If you have a poor reputation of, or if you're misunderstood, it's very difficult to get things done. Um, and really what reputation management is about is, is helping make sure that people are consistent in what they say uh, and what they do. And, you know, Gosh. if I... That must be very difficult working with politicians around well, the world. <laughs> if I went around saying that I could run a three-hour marathon and I was... 20 stone and yeah. uh, a bit flabby, then uh, that would have no credibility. So uh, a lot of it is about making sure that what we say is aligned with what we do, and, and that lies at the heart of, of, of all of this. Yeah, I mean, I kind of took on the British establishment, um, you know, because they all wanted to be in the EU. I mean, every one of them, every paper, every business leader, every trade union, it changed, of course, as the years went on. Uh, but I found this, you take on the establishment, and you're just trashed by everybody. Um, and, of course... As social media grew during those years, it got even harder. Um, what does someone do when they're really in a crisis? A leader, a politician, a business figure. It happens to businesses too. I mean, reputations can fall. Amazing how business reputations can fall so quickly. What does one do when one's deep? I mean, Dennis Healy once said, when in a hole, stop digging. I mean, what would your advice to Rishi Sunak be today? Oh, gosh, I mean... It, it he, he is in a real pickle. Uh, he's, he's facing a real problem at the moment. And, of course, his, his mistake uh, was to be inconsistent. That point that I was making earlier about what you say and what you do. Ooh. If you are going out there and telling the country that uh, uh, you know, they need to tighten their belts, that uh, lives are getting more difficult, that people are suffering because of cost of living... Taxes and, are going up. <laughs> taxes are going up. And you're not doing that, that is... Utterly inconsistent, and and this is at the heart of all of this. Uh, we could say the same about Boris. Um, you know, Boris hosting parties. You know, I don't really care that much whether Boris hosts parties or not, but a lot of people do, and yeah. the reason a lot of people care is because there is an inconsistency there. So, there's a very straightforward thing that that we often do, or we always do with our clients, and we look at what they do, and we look at what they say, mm. and if they're not in alignment, then you're going to have a problem. No, I can see that. And, of course, the charge of hypocrisy, perhaps, being the worst inconsistency yep. uh, that, that, that people can put up with. This whole development, just in a social media, this explosion of Twitter, Facebook, uh, and, and many, many others. And there is no doubt, it seems to me, that the more conservative voices have struggled over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, like him or not... Donald Trump, and I was at Mar-a-Lago on Thursday night seeing him, you know, he's banned from Twitter, but the leadership of the Taliban, the mm. day they retook Kabul, are on Twitter. 
Um, this is a real problem, isn't it? It's a real problem if, if the centre-right voices are not getting a fair hearing. Yeah, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that everything is about Twitter and Facebook. No, they are important, no, that's of course. And, and they're important because, for example, Twitter helps journalists who write the newspapers... It's a shortcut. ...work out what to write about and, and what to think. So it has its role, but two-thirds of the Russian population only get their information from state sources. They only get their information from... Uh, state television. So I think we have to look at all of this in the round and make sure that we're not getting distracted, as the media often does, by certain sources such as, such as Twitter. And of course there is a massive, at least I think, there's a massive information war that we're in the midst of, right at this very moment in time, yeah. where President Zelensky, dressed in his fatigues, you know, addressing the UN and the British Parliament and the Joint House of Congress in America, um, and kind of, I suppose in one way, being painted out to be a complete and utter hero. I mean, the sort of the new Churchill, the, the, all of that. Uh, Putin, uh, very clearly, uh, being painted out by broad mainstream media to be the devil and talk of war crimes trials and Nuremberg uh, 2.0 and all the rest of it. Um, and yet... You know, Ukraine is far from perfect as a country. We know that. Uh, corruption, I think one of the most corrupt countries in the world, one of the great money laundering sites in the uh, places in the world. Uh, is there a legacy of, far, of the far right in parts of Ukraine? I think there almost certainly is. But what are, we, I mean, what are we to believe and not to believe as to what's coming out here? Yes. How, do we, how does the person sitting at home work out what's true and what's not? Because it's been difficult, I think. And this is really important, and it's going to be even more important in the years to come, because there is no doubt about the fact that we are in an information war. We are all part of this information war, whether we like it or not. And our actions uh, have consequences in this information war. So in an information war, three things, three things happen. The first thing that happens is there is a, there's a battle for uh, control of the narrative. Who's right? Yep. Who's wrong? Who's winning? Who's losing? who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. And we can see this in Ukraine at the moment. The other thing that tends to happen in information war is that uh, you, you get disinformation, you get attempts to muddy the water, to confuse people. And of course, Putin is a master of this, and it is part of his strategy to create that confusion, because guess what happens? If there's confusion, then we don't know who to support. We don't know whether we, and actually we choose not to get involved. So, you know, they're both as bad as each other, aren't they? You know, look at all this, it's somebody else's problem. You know, it helps to get people to take their eye off the ball. And then the final thing, and I think this is going to be the really important part in the years to come, is, you know, what are the long-term goals and objectives? What is our purpose? What are we fighting for? And I think that's where we, in the West and uh, here, have taken their eye off the ball. Mm -hmm. I don't think we know what we're fighting for. I don't think we have a clear sense of our long-term goals. We don't have a really clear sense of what we're fighting for. And with that, we don't have a sense of, if we're fighting for this, what are we prepared mm. to give up? And, and you made the point earlier about uh, us funding the, German, the, 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 the Russian war machine yeah. with a billion dollars yeah. worth I mean, of gas. A day. You couldn't invent this stuff, could you? It, it's, it's astonishing. We are literally funding this war. The Germans take 
40% of, well, of their energy comes from, from Putin's gas. We could stop this tomorrow by turning off our heating three days a week and having cold showers. Oh, now that's a, come on. That's I mean, a... That really is pushing it, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the thought of cold showers just... Giving up our beer money, I don't know. <laughs> but that wouldn't really help us, would it, in this country? Because we don't buy... We, we buy about 4% of our gas, I think, from Russia. Um, but Germany needs gas because it needs to power its factories. And we need gas because we've gone so far down the wind turbine route that when there's an anticyclone, the wretched things don't turn, and gas is the only way we can quickly um, you know, fill, fill and, and, and plug that gap. Thinking about the information war, let's say I am living in the suburbs of Moscow, and I'm out of the house from 8 o'clock in the morning till 7 in the evening doing my job, whatever I do. Uh, I haven't got a huge amount of time, but I've got the state television I can watch, I've got whatever newspapers I can get. If I'm living there, presumably I can get whatever I want on the internet or not. It's, it's tricky, and it's tricky because what both sides have started doing, it's not just the Russians, but it's us as well, uh, we have started to make it difficult, or, or countries, uh, governments make it difficult for ordinary citizens to access what they need to. And, you know, it's not just as simple as just shutting down uh, YouTube or TikTok or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had a go at uh, accessing one of the Russian uh, 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 news portals this afternoon. I couldn't do it. So we are being denied yes. on both sides. Elon access. Musk talked about this, didn't he? Elon Musk said, whatever you think of these Russian news sites, people should be able to access them. Well, this is the point. Um, we should be the judges and the arbiters of what's information, mm. what's disinformation. Mm. Mm. We don't need the state to worry that we can't cope with that level of uh, information. Um, if we go down that path, we're going down a very Orwellian path. So, so to answer your question, yeah. um, your average Russian citizen uh, will not access the things that we look at. They won't uh, look at the news portals we look at. Russian TV is a very peculiar and particular thing, and it is dominated by the Ukraine war at the moment. Um, and very cleverly, the television stations have... Uh, one of the things they do very cleverly is that they appropriate the things that we do and, and apply them very, very quickly. So uh, what the Russians are now doing on television is micro-targeting and appealing to different sections in Russian society. Uh, 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 an astrology show for housewives in the afternoon seems very innocuous and you know, uh, not particularly serious. But, but in there, there will be information about the uh, Russian perspective on, on, on the war. And that's what's happening yeah. in Russia at the moment. Sounds rather like uh, Radio 4, trying try, try to over <laughs> overthrow Brexit. Doing <laughs> Listening it through the food, food, to... food programme or whatever it was. <laughs> Justin, interesting conversation. You raised some very, very big, big points there that this information war, we're all part of it. It isn't going away. And what we should and shouldn't believe needs a great degree of discernment. Thank you for joining me. Cheers, I'm talking pints. Thank you. Thank you. It's towards the end of the show. It is Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions. Let's go. Simon asks, do you... Oh, here we go. Do you think the reputation of the monarchy has been damaged beyond repair? Well, I would say, all the while the Queen is there, 
no one. I'm hoping she lives for a very, very long time. Monarchy's reputation, Justin. You know what I was saying about consistency between yep. what you say and what you yep. do? Yep. Uh, the, the Queen has spent her entire life at, uh, living at duty and service. Duty and service are the two values that underpin Her Majesty the Queen's monarchy. And as long as the monarchy respects and, and lives those values, then it will be okay. Certain members haven't. Yeah. Other members are doing that as we speak. Yeah, it's a very high bar, though, isn't it? Dulcie asks, if Trump is nominated in 2024, will you help him campaign? I was at Mar-a-Lago, as I said, on Thursday evening, spent some time with him. Uh, he's in pretty rare form at the moment, as you can imagine. Um, is he going to run again? I think he probably is. Uh, would I want to help him? I tell you what, you may not like his style. You may find him a really brusque, rough uh, New Yorker, uh, and to many he is. Uh, but on the really big-picture calls on the world, he's been right about a lot of things. And I can promise you, Putin would not be in Ukraine if Trump was in the White House, whatever our Democrat spokesperson said earlier. John asks me, should we have a referendum on the return of a death penalty? Um, I don't think there's any point. Uh, whilst there are a lot of people who would still support the death penalty, I think there's been a very big generational shift on this. And I think that, you know, what my parents' generation felt about it what my children think about it are poles and poles apart. I don't think it would pass. And I don't think there's a great demand for it, even though it is tempting sometimes to think about it. Ryan asks, would you support automatic by-election from any MP who was found guilty of a crime? So we go back to sort of Dickensian um, London, where uh, it's the difference between a felony and a crime. So if an MP gets a prison sentence of less than one year and one day, they can keep their seat as MPs. Over one year and one day, they have to go. But now at least we have recall. Um, and if Imran Khan really thinks that somehow he's going to hang on uh, being the MP for Wakefield, he's got another think coming, I can promise you. Well, I'm back with you tomorrow evening at 7pm.